this week on the Back Table Podcast. Is there a difference in uh, how you evaluate horses and a singer versus a non-singer? Or is it pretty standard? Or do you not even think of the groups that way? Oh, no, I think of them that way. <laughs> I really do. So with our singer patients, I do actually uh, get a much more detailed history about what their training is, what their usual singing routine is, what are their upcoming and pending engagements, uh, how is this impacting your income? Because for, the, for a lot of people who depend on their voice for their living, um, that added stress really can contribute to worsening voice problems with anxiety and other issues uh, that come as a result of that. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Back Table ENT podcast. If you're a returning listener, you know our goal here is medical education in otolaryngology. We seek to accomplish this through conversations with experts in the field, and we hope that you can take this information and apply it to your practice. Uh, quick introductions. Uh, I'm Ashley Agan, and I'm a general otolaryngologist practicing in an academic setting in Dallas, Texas. And my name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist uh, here in Dallas at UT Southwestern as well. How are you doing, Ash? You doing okay? Gopi, every Saturday I get to do a podcast with you as a good day. I love that you say that every time. <laughs> I mean it every time. I mean it too. Likewise, likewise. We have a very awesome, awesome guest with us today. We have Dr. Mark Williams, MD, PhD. He's an otolaryngologist in Nashville, Tennessee, who specializes treating and preventing voice problems in singers. Dr. Williams gave me my first job out of residency as a general otolaryngologist in his practice. It was my first, quote, clinical fellowship as I learned the importance of running a clinic in ENT, working well with the staff, and developing relationships with my patients. Dr. Williams is here today to talk to us about voice care and his passion, music, medicine, and ministry. Welcome to the show, Dr. Williams. Well, thank you for having me on the show. And it's good to see you and talk to you again. I know. It's so good to see you. Uh, first of all, thank you for giving me my first job out of residency. That, that's a big, risky move on your part when I think about it now. It was no risk at all on my part. In fact, I'm, I'm disappointed that you decided to leave. But I wish we could get you to come back. We miss you. I just, oh, I miss you too. I miss you too. Um, do you want to first just tell us about yourself and your practice? Well, I am a general otolaryngologist trained at the University of Cincinnati. And as soon as I finished with residency, I wanted to uh, locate to a city that there was a vibrant musical community. I'm a singer and songwriter myself, and I wanted to be able to treat singers with voice problems. I'm a gospel music recording artist. And so it became a toss-up for me between Memphis and Nashville. Memphis, a lot of people don't think about Memphis as a big music city, but the music scene, particularly for the music that I was interested in, is phenomenal in Memphis. And there was a gentleman uh, their doctor, um, Neil Beckford in Memphis, who would do it, who was doing exactly what I wanted to do in a general practice, uh, community private based, uh, practice. Uh, he was seeing voice patients and I interviewed with him, but the opportunity came available to start my own practice in Nashville, Tennessee. They don't teach us how to run a business in medical school. So that was uh, a challenge in and of itself, just moving to Nashville, fresh out of residency training, opening a practice myself with no partners, no experience in running a business. And somehow or another, we've uh, flailed along and managed to still be in business here now, 14 years later in Nashville. Exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. So as a 
as a general otolaryngologist, you're seeing, um, in addition to seeing voice patients, you're seeing, you know, all the range of general ENT still as well. Anyone who comes to the door, pretty much. I, uh, I do just about <laughs> anything that comes through from eight to 88 days to 80 years old or 90 years old, whatever. We're doing middle ear surgery, uh, middle ear mastoid surgeries. I'm doing thyroidectomies, parotidectomies. Interestingly, as I get older now, I'm starting to really appreciate tonsillectomies and air tubes. <laughs> There's I, some satisfaction and a good tonsil, ear tube day, small, you know, uh, not major problems, but the quality of life impact. Um, loving your it. families. Yeah. Loving it. In fact, you know, I actually thought that I didn't want to do otolaryngology in medical school at first I was going to do. I thought I was more interested in neurosurgery or cardiothoracic surgery. And someone suggested it was a, I was doing my PhD research in the department of surgery and one of the surgery residents came through. She knew I was interested in singing and she said, you should consider otolaryngology. I said, I don't want to be an ear tube and tonsillectomy doctor. Right. And that's exactly my words. And now I'm saying, man, I miss those. And over the past couple of years, my pediatric base has sort of declined. And I'm anxious at going back in and trying to reestablish that and grow that again, because I miss those patients. Yeah, I think it was your Fridays that were your pediatric days. Yes. You recall, we probably have maybe 55 or 60 patients yeah. on the schedule. And now we're lucky if we see 10 pediatric patients yeah. on a Friday and we've got to build that back up. Yeah. Well, I think the pandemic has also made pediatric ENT in terms of even the made, you know, the bread and butter tubes and tonsils uh, with social distancing and masking. Hopefully as things kind of open up with schools and daycares and all that kind of stuff, you know, we, you know, we know what helps, <laughs> but we might as things open up, uh, see some of that some more. Um, so Dr. Williams, how does a voice patient present to you in your clinic? Voice patients present a variety of different ways for me, especially being here in Nashville. In Nashville, we have a voice patients who aren't presenting for voice problems, even for that matter. They're singers. You can throw a coin into a group of people and that same coin hit about five singers before they hit, before it hits the ground. Uh, so they're presenting with every problem that they have, but many of the patients that I see that are specifically a voice issues are coming in for a wide range of problems. They're having difficulty with singing, um, and, or speaking. And then we have even those patients who present with very subtle voice issues. And we're seeing a little bit more of that now that people have been inactive and not singing much over the past year with the pandemic. We see people have, their voices have become deconditioned. And so they're presenting and say, well, man, after I'm singing a song or two, I'm, I'm spent, I'm having early vocal fatigue. And, and so these more subtle voice issues, or I'm losing a little bit of my pitch range are presenting. So these subtle uh, complaints are more prevalent now than they had been in the past. In the past, it was more like, hey, I'm, I'm literally hoarse. I'm having a lot of breathiness or this coarse sound to my voice and I can't do my falsetto. They used to be more complex or direct problems. Uh, now they're more subtle and we have to figure out exactly, do you really have a voice problem or is there, is there something anatomical or is it something more functional? And so um, what, you know, when a patient comes in and they are seeing you for hoarseness or, you know, something specifically related to voice, what does that evaluation look like? Can you kind of walk us through, you know, key questions we need to be asking and, you know, what the um, exam and workup looks like? Yeah. 
that's always the challenge for me. It's because when patients describe everything as hoarseness, and so they don't know some of the finer uh, descriptions that we have, I'll ask, so what's the problem? They say, well, I'm hoarse. I get hoarse all the time. And and trying to get them to be a little bit more explicit about what they mean by hoarseness. Is it, is it breathiness to the voice or is it, is it that you have a more coarse or moist sound to your voice? Are you, have you lost pitch range? You're no longer able to hit the, the notes that you were hitting, uh, or are they just not coming out clear? Are you feeling pain in the throat or are you, uh, have you lost some dynamic control and the agility of your voice? And so we have to dig in a little bit more deeply with some of these, particularly voice patients, because they're just saying I'm a horse. And to me that it means almost nothing, uh, as a, as a clinician who specializes in voice, it means almost nothing because people's description of hoarseness is so wide. I know you're familiar with people say, well, I've got the sinus, you know, you're like, well, <laughs> what are, <laughs> what's your complaint? What's right. my sinuses? Right, right. <laughs> And so yeah. it's, those are the two areas that challenge me the most. Yeah. I'm like, describe that a little bit more for me. And so we have to help yeah. those patients describe what they're talking about. Is it just happening in the mornings when you wake up or is it happening? Is it worse in the evening or you're fine in the morning then as the day progresses that it gets worse? Or we have to pull that information from our patients because they don't readily offer it and they probably haven't even thought about it until after I've started asking these questions. And then do you ever find that as you go through the history with them, what they're describing to you, you is there ever a discrepancy from your perception of what their voice problem is? Like, is there, how do you come like on the same understanding of what they think is a problem and what you hear? Is there ever a difference in that? There's often a difference in that. And that determines for me exactly how I'm going to proceed with evaluating their, their larynx. For example, patients may uh, come into the office and complain of hoarseness and I'm listening to them communicate and speak to me and their voice sounds just as clear as, you know, the clearest the day. And I know in that moment that if I look at their vocal cords with a flexible laryngoscope or fiber optic laryngoscope, then I'm probably not going to see a lesion on the vocal folds. Usually our ability to perceive a voice disturbance with our ears just from talking with a patient um, will let me know whether it's worthwhile putting a flexible scope in on this patient. Rarely do I see someone whose voice sounds normal to me. Uh, rarely do I see any any anatomical pathology or nodules or polyps, or even for that matter, erythema of the vocal folds. It's those more subtle ones. So when I have singers come in, particularly who are, uh, seem to have a clear voice and they're telling me that they're hoarse, I may actually have them sing to demonstrate where they're having the problem. Sometimes they're having problems uh, with that passaggio changing from their full chest voice to their, to their falsetto voice. And so we'll have them demonstrate where they're having problems because I'm not a trained singer myself. Uh, I don't try to get too much into that. And I'll leave that to my voice therapist, who is actually a trained, she, she's a pedagogist, but she's also a speak, speech language pathologist who specializes in voice. But that is one of the things that I'll do uh, to help uncover where the problem is. But if everything sounds normal to me, I'm thinking immediately I'm going to proceed to video stroboscopy. 
Can you talk about what that is? You know, when we talk about doing a strobe exam for a patient, you know, what does that mean? What kind of information is that giving us that your typical flexible laryngoscopy isn't? Yeah. So laryngo video stroboscopy is a technique where we are able to look at not just the anatomy of the vocal folds, but also how they function as air moves through the vocal folds and calls them and sets them into vibration. The vocal folds will vibrate anywhere 80 times to 400 times or more uh, per second. And obviously that's too quick, too fast for the human retina to fix an image on. And so you can't actually see the vocal folds um, vibrate. So what we'll do is we'll shine a strobe light on the vocal folds uh, while we're looking at their, their function while the patient is phonating and, uh, or, or creating voice. And, uh, that strobe light makes it appear that the vocal folds are vibrating in slow motion. What it's really doing is it's actually capturing different images of different uh, stages of the vibratory cycle. And it gives the illusion that the vocal folds are moving in slow motion. So it usually gives us a little bit better resolution of uh, the anatomy, but it also gives us a little bit of insight into the, the function of the vocal folds. So you can find out if the vocal folds are a little too stiff or if there's a, if there's some deficit of mucosal wave propagation and why the vocal folds aren't as elastic as they should be. And that might be contributing to some of their voice issues as well. Uh, it can also, it's a little bit more sensitive for picking up on things like nodules or distinguishing between a vocal nodule and a vocal cyst. So the resolution, particularly if you do a rigid video stroboscopy, the resolution is a lot better. As you're aware, there are two different ways that we can evaluate the vocal folds. One is with a l rigid laryngoscope, and then the other one is with a flexible fiber optic one. Fiber optic one goes through the nose. The rigid one will go through the mouth. It's a 70 degree Angle has much better uh, visualization. And so I prefer to use a rigid scope when I'm doing my video stroboscopies. Technology has advanced where we can do what's called distal chip, where they put the chip in the distal end of the fiber optic laryngoscope, and then you can do a stroboscopy that way, which is if you're trying to look at the dynamics of phonation and the uh, voice production, it's much easier to do that with the flexible distal chip video laryngoscope. The reason being is because if we do the rigid one, we have to actually hold the patient's tongue at, while they phonate. And it's a very artificial situation. Whereas if you had a flexible scope, you can put it through the nose and you can actually evaluate how they're, how they're, what's, what's going on with the larynx and the supraglottis. And, and even for that matter, the hypopharynx while they're actually speaking in a more normal manner. In fact, we, um, I participated in a graduate student's doctoral thesis research where we were evaluating a vocal technique in gospel music called squall. I don't know if you're all familiar with squall very much, but in gospel music, ah, that type of thing. <laughs> and it's, uh, it can be incredibly damaging to the vocal folds if you don't know how to do it properly. But in gospel music, it's a very moving an emotive type singing technique that really moves the audience and the listeners. And so the singers who have perfected that without causing damage to the vocal folds, we really want to know how to do that. Not many coaches know how to teach that technique. 
Well, you obviously couldn't do that if you were holding someone's tongue with a with a rigid laryngoscope. So we were fortunate to be able to use a, a flexible distal chip one to evaluate what structures were actually vibrating whilst uh, singers were using that technique. And we found that different singers use different superglottic structures and some people actually use their vocal folds and create a, a, a sort of a fry of the vocal folds when they when they're singing. And obviously that can be more dangerous uh, and, and harmful to the vocal folds as opposed to some who were perhaps using their arytenoids to create the vibratory sound or the distortion in their sound. But a flexible distal chip uh, video laryngoscope was, uh, stroboscope was able to be more effective in that regard. So I wish I had the money in my private practice to have one of those <laughs> things, but we had it for academic purposes and it worked for what it did for it. But in my practice, we use a rigid one. It gives us a better illusion and it's more affordable for people like me. <laughs> Just to, um, kind of go to some basics. Do you, how do you document your strobe? And I, I remember, I think I might've asked you this um, in practice as well, because to laryngology to me, it, it's something just so foreign still to a certain extent, because unless you've really had time to shadow or watch uh, a laryngologist and a speech pathologist in clinic in your training, or maybe, you know, in whoever's practice, to me, it's a very hard thing to quite understand. So I know how I document, you know, my basic flexible laryngoscopy for you know, dysphagia or uh, strider, but I don't know what, uh, how do you document? What are, you know, what's your note look like, I guess, or what are the things that you definitely always put down in your progress note? Right. So uh, video stroboscopy is one of those areas where there's a lot of subjectivity. I think voice and, and measuring voice anyway, the GRBAS type uh, assessments, a lot of this is so subjective that there's a lot of variability. So if you are going to try to rate someone the graveliness, for example, or the roughness of someone's voice, you know, one listener may rate it, you know, zero, one or two, and then another person may do it a different number. And um, the same thing happens with when we're evaluating the video strobe. But there are certain characteristics that we are always looking at. We're looking at the medial surface of the vocal folds, whether it's smooth or whether it's rough. I'm always documenting that. We're looking at glottal closure, whether or not there's complete glottal closure, uh, anterior or posterior chink or gap in the vocal folds. Are there any lesions on the vocal folds? We're also looking at the mobility of the vocal folds, mucosal wave propagation. Does it seem like it's smooth and it's intact or is it impeded somehow or another? Um, we're looking also at periodicity, whether or not the vocal folds are, are uh, vibrating regularly. Uh, with a video stroboscopy, or are there irregularities to the glottal cycle? Other things that I will document in there are going to be, uh, it's kind of difficult to not have a template. So it really helps to have a template right in front of you because you go through and you click each one of these things. And so I'm trying to remember what the template looks like in my head. So to answer your question, that's how I document it. I fill in the <laughs> blanks on the template. <laughs> But uh, but the level of the vocal folds too, uh, this whether or not they're 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 equal or not, uh, we look at what what phase predominates, whether the closed phase or the open phase, uh, the glottal phase, uh, glottal appearance or apparatus, whether it spends more time open versus closed. Uh, so those are things that we do, and particularly, I'm also wanting to document what the um, fundamental frequency is. When I have patients always read a passage 
Uh, it's a standard passage. And I measure, what's that? The rainbow. Yeah. The, the rainbow ra passage. The vision of white light <laughs> divided into many colors. Yes, exactly. That rainbow passage. And uh, we look to see what their what their speech frequency is. And then you ask them to sing. And then all of a sudden they're speaking right here. But then they, you have them say E or I, they E. You're like, wait a minute. In your normal speaking voice. Okay. E. <laughs> and so, okay. Well, fine. Okay. Ah. Uh, and um, so we, we'll measure those as well, because you can see some differences where people are normally speaking out at a higher pitch or lower pitch than they really should. And that's something that's helpful for my uh, voice therapist. How exactly she used it, unfortunately, I don't know. But I do know that if you're, if you're speaking at a much lower pitch than you normally should, then that needs to be corrected. And so they will help to coach our patients back to that range. Are there any other physical exam findings that are really key that, you know, you're looking at when you're evaluating these patients? Yeah. So there are a variety of different things that, that can cause voice problems in patients. Uh, of course, I'm also evaluating even, especially if I have a patient singing, I'm, I'm looking at their posture and their singing because that often can give you some clues into why they may be having a voice disturbance. But one of the more easy things that I'm screening for early on is, does the patient have post-nasal drainage? Are they having signs and symptoms of esophageal or laryngopharyngeal reflux, as those will contribute to some voice dysfunction as well. As you're aware, the voice requires three functioning systems, the, the respirator or the lungs, the phonator, the vibrator, the vocal folds, and then the resonator, everything above the vocal folds. So the throat, the teeth, the nose, the mouth, all of those things shape the voice, the sound that's created by air moving through the vocal folds. They shape that into an intelligible sound that we call voice. And so if there's a disturbance in any one of those three systems, then you're going to have a voice disturbance. And so as part of our evaluation, we really do have to evaluate the entire person. Uh, so if they have nasal congestion or turbinate hypertrophy, I'm even looking to see, you know, the size of people's tonsils because those things will actually impact the resonating chamber as well. But if I were specifically, most of, most of my exam is directed toward looking for, or at least it's guided by the history. And so if you give me a history of post-nasal drainage, I'm going to be looking in the oral pharynx to see if I see any evidence of that. If you give me history of esophageal reflux or heartburn symptoms or frequent throat clearing, globus sensation, cough with that, when I do my laryngoscopic examination, I'm going to look in the posterior glottis to find out if I see any pachydermia in that region. Subtle findings sometimes can help to identify where the uh, voice issue comes from for these patients. Often we find that it's just muscle tension and we have a lot of patients who are having voice problems that started from something physiologic and then they compensated for it with a behavior because they've been talking through and singing through this for so long and they developed some compensatory behaviors that now the compensatory behaviors are causing more problems than the original pathology did after the original pathology healed. And so we have to get them uh, working with a good voice therapist to break those compensatory behaviors, get voicing back to normal. Are you doing, like, is there anything on your laryngeal palpation exam? When you mentioned uh, muscle tension, 
like when you palpate, are there certain parts of the laryngeal framework or the cartilaginous framework, I guess, um, that you palpate or check for? Do they have pain often? Or is there stuff, stuff like that on your physical exam? As a matter of fact, I do. Um, patients who relay a history of pain, particularly after singing or after voice use, I, I'm specifically palpating the strap muscles and seeing if they're tender along the strap muscles, along the thyrohyoid uh, membrane as well. Those things are key indicators that uh, patients may have some muscle tension dysphonia. So if you have that uh, tenderness in those areas, I'm, I'm really thinking that muscle tension is at least contributing to some of your voice problems. For your tension patients, do you, in addition to voice therapy, do you ever send them to physical therapy or, or for a massage or anything like that? Occasionally, we do have some patients who are who have horrible tension, muscle tension. It's not just in the extrinsic muscles of the larynx, but the entire, you know, cervical group of musculature and their shoulders there really need some additional physical therapy. I've even had several patients who've had problems with dysphagia because they've had so much tension in the neck and Usually most of, I send them to my voice therapist first and my voice therapist is usually the one who will request that they see the physical therapist afterwards. And then I'll just make the referral after that. Unless of course they're describing, you know, they're presenting with complaints of cervicalgia. Yeah, that's, that's uh, similar to what we see in our practice too. Is there a difference in uh, how you evaluate horses and a singer versus a non-singer or is it pretty standard? Or do you not even think of the groups that way? Oh, no, I think of them that way. (laughs) (laughs) I really do. (laughs) Well, so with our singer patients, I do actually uh, get a much more detailed history about what their training is, what their usual singing routine is, what are their upcoming and pending engagements, uh, how is this impacting your income? Because for for a lot of people who depend on their voice for their living, um, that added stress really can contribute to worsening um, voice problems um, with anxiety and other issues uh, that come as a result of that. So, yes, I do have to uh, expand my interrogatories, I guess, and my history for my singer patients. Often I will, I usually do my video stroboscopies because they can take a, uh, quite a bit of time and be pretty disruptive to the flow of patients. So I usually schedule those in a specific appointment just for video stroboscopy. And I typically do those on a Friday. So if I have a singer patient who presents to me and I'm listening to them and their voice sounds normal, I automatically know that I'm going to video stroboscopy as opposed to even putting a a flexible scope in their their nose while they're in the office. Um, Non-singer patients, I may start off with just using a flexible scope, but if you are a singer, I'm pretty much resolved to the idea that I'm going to do a video stroboscopy on you fairly early on. And so um, just, you know, moving on to maybe treatment options, we talked about some different things that you you see, you know, post-nasal drainage and laryngopharyngeal reflux. Can you talk about different treatment options that you're using in your practice? You know, particularly, I would be interested to hear how you counsel your, your mucus patients. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, uh, because we get a lot of patients in who will come in with um, allergies being here in Nashville. Allergies are a huge problem for us down here. So 
number one is any patient who's having voice issues, I want to get their allergies under good control. Even if it's not directly contributing to their voice issue, I, I think that if you're not taking care of all this resonator, you're not going to get the best voice that you can possibly get anyhow. And so if you, so if you didn't present to me with that complaint, I'm screening for it as well. And make sure that I initially start off with just a nasal steroid spray. I'm a big fan of the nasal steroid sprays. I prefer that they use that over an oral antihistamine any day. In fact, before I put you on an oral antihistamine, I'll put you on a nasal antihistamine if the steroid, if the nasal steroid is not sufficient alone. And by the time I have you on a nasal steroid and the antihistamine sprays, if you're still having problems, we need to be allergy tested. I need to get you tested. We'll, so we'll perform the allergy testing and, and look at getting people started on immunotherapy if, if appropriate. The goal is, is uh, I like to avoid as many antihistamines as possible, uh, whether they're nasal or especially oral. Of course, the first generation antihistamines, I really try to keep all of my patients away from the diphenhydramines, clofeniramines, and uh, the over-the-counter cold and sinus medications uh, like Tylenol or Advil. I try to keep them away from that one at all costs. Now, some of the second or third generation antihistamines, the Allegra's, the, the Claritin's and Zizol's, all of those have a less drying effect, but often they're less, as if they're less effective in controlling the allergies for our patients. But unfortunately, we sometimes have to get patients on some of those more drying and sedating courses, but we have to control the allergies however we can. My goal is to have a long-term perspective with treating that. So I counsel the patients to say, listen, we don't want to keep you on these drugs all the time because they will impact your voice. So our goal is gradually to get you desensitized to those allergens. And so that's how I approach it with allergies, first starting with the nasal steroid sprays and then adding in an antihistamine spray. Uh, may allergy test you even before I add the antihistamine spray into it. My last resort is going to be something like uh, Zyrtec or, and then Benadryl even beyond that. And if I had to put you on an antihistamine, I'm usually starting with a singular. I would much rather, especially a singer, I'd much rather add singular. And I know it probably won't do very much good, but if you are a singer who's already having voice problems, before I even put you on an Allegra, I'd really rather put as a third line something like singular and see if we can get some results with it. Because if we can't, then we just, of course, have to move over to an oral antihistamine. Yes, I discriminate against our oral antihistamine. <laughs> I, I, I say the same thing. I'm glad to hear, you know, someone else who's so anti-antihistamines because yeah. I'm always like, we need to get you off of these. It's too drying. <laughs> exactly. I had a friend, I had a, a singer friend who flew in from uh, Texas actually to see me. And he said, man, I just can't sing it. You know, he's just now, he and his wife are dynamic singers. I mean, phenomenal singers. They sing background for a variety of different uh, artists or whatever, and has just released his own project. And so he's, man, I just can't sing. I'm, I'm losing my voice right off, right off the bat. And, you know, I'm wondering, what, what are you sounding like? I'm get all this breathiness. And, and I listen to him. He's taking antihistamines left and right. And, all kinds of multiple uh, Benadryl four times a day. And I said, first of all, we have to get you off of all of these. 
And once we get you off of all of these, then we perhaps notice a big improvement. Um, so I'm, I'm excited when we can um, do a simple intervention that provides a, a very dramatic response for these patients. Tell us about um, the singer that's got a performance. What, at what point are you like, you can't sing in this performance? Do you ever have to recommend canceling a performance? What, how does that go? That's a tough one. That is a tough one. I try not to get into that too much. Um, yeah. I try to present to patients the options. And one of the ways that I present it to them is to say, what's the cost of a bad performance? You know, will it cost you more to have a bad performance than it would be to cancel? I had another singer patient who was just on their way to travel across seas to do a concert. They were had a reunion, a reunion tour and this patient presented with a horrible, uh, polyp. And I'm saying, yeah, I don't know that you're actually listening to you now. I don't know that you're actually going to be able to perform during this. And are there other ways? Can you, as much as I hate to suggest it, can you lip sync? Uh, can you lower the key? Uh, so these are some options that we have. Is it someone else in your group who could perhaps sing a certain part of this that it can relieve some of the burden of singing for you? So we start looking at different alternatives before we flat out right say you can't sing. And, and if it comes down to the point where you can't sing, I usually put that into the hand of the patient to say, what's the cost of a bad performance for you? Because you really never get a second chance to make that first impression. And if it means sometimes you just have to pass up on this one and deal with the consequence of that, then having a bad performance. So the oral steroid burst and the B12 shot, does that work or not work? They, they work sometimes. They work sometimes. Okay. Um, I, I do have a big problem with people with otolaryngologists who had a voice coach uh, texted me just yesterday, said, what do you think about steroids and doctors who give shots for steroids for singers? And this guy, it's a very scientific voice science oriented coach. And I love this about him. Um, but he wanted to ask me about my thoughts on that first. And I said, my, my policy is that no singer should get a steroid shot for voice issues until their vocal folds have been examined. It just creates a sense of false security. And my biggest concern is what happens if you have a, an ectasia, a prominent blood vessel on the vocal folds, and you give someone a, a steroid shot that reduces some of the inflammation around the vocal folds, and they go at it, and they have a vocal fold hemorrhage and or some other complications as a result of it. So I just don't believe that steroids should be given uh, without first carefully evaluating the vocal folds to find out what's going on. Now, I do think that they do have a place in their treatment, especially and uh, people with pending engagements. And so, and I have given the steroid shots as well to help get people through that. But it's always after I've had a chance to evaluate their vocal folds first. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Talk to us about what is meant by vocal hygiene. Is that drink a lot of water? Drink a lot of water. Then. Oh, and don't talk? Right. What does that mean? <laughs> That's usually what it means for me. You know, I try to keep it simple. Just drink a lot of water <laughs> and do your exercises. Exercise the voice, get plenty. It's a wide range of things. So it's, it's drinking right. It's drinking plenty of water. Obviously, that's the number one place is, is make sure that you stay well hydrated. I'm, I'm 
amazed at how many singers, every time I go to speak at a conference or something with singers, they always want to grab a bottle of water right before they're singing it. I'd say, this is not the time to drink it. You can drink it now if your mouth is dry, but your goal is to be, have this homeostasis, you know, a steady state of hydration. And, uh, so just drinking this water right before you sing is not, um, it's not very helpful for you, but drinking well, the water. Speaking of water is what about bubbly water is, does that count? Or are we talking about just straight? Like, can water? we get a Tobo Chico <laughs> like going, or is it just still flat? So that matter. There are three categories. There are things that I, that are definite no's. There are things that are definite. Yes. Like water. And then there are things that I say, well, it may help, may not help, and it may not harm. So, it, you know, as long as it doesn't harm, I don't know that the bubbly water, uh, that there's any scientific evidence that I'm aware of, at least, that that uh, carbonated water will impact the vocal folds. I, I prefer it just be regular water instead of even, for that matter, the water sweeteners or flavors that you put in. But if, if it's not going to ca cause any harm, and if that's the only way you're going to get the water in, I'd rather you get it that way. And then the caffeines. And then there's a, a whole discourse of whether or not caffeine really has an effect on the vocal folds. And, you know, the academicians are debating this now, whether or not, well, if you're, if you're used to drinking caffeine all the time, then drinking caffeine is probably not going to be harmful to your voice. But if you're not a regular caffeine drinker, and then all of a sudden you take a big caffeine load, it drives the vocal folds out. These are things that I, my, my response is, it's better to just avoid the caffeine. Yeah. If you can, just avoid the caffeine. So that would be part of vocal hygiene. Watch what you eat and when you eat and how much you eat. And so it's uh, for, for, for my patients, I'm, I'm telling them, try to avoid eat, try to avoid lying down within three hours of eating. Uh, if you have to sleep, sleep at the head of your bed, elevated, let gravity help prevent some of the reflux, avoid the spicy, greasy, acidic foods. They hate it when I tell them to avoid the alcohol, <laughs> all those things that can contribute to reflux. And, uh, but for me, for a really great Friday night at happy hour, but, <laughs> but I, I usually say, take all things in reason. You know, I think all things in moderation. So it doesn't mean that you can never have these things. I would never go that far, but understand, understand where your voice is and understand the impact of some of the things, your behaviors, some of your, your diet and lifestyle, how those things impact your voice. And you have to make the determination whether or not it's worth being very extreme about it, or if you can get by with uh, a couple of cheats here or there. I, there was another thing I was going to say about voice hygiene that we often don't think about uh, as it relates to voice hygiene, but I think it is just mental health and staying in good physical shape. Staying in just good physical shape, obviously you can't breathe, you can't sing. Keeping good physical and mental health, those are things that I think are, do contribute to helping to maintain good voice uh, production and good uh, voice performance for those of us who depend on those. When do you have to tell somebody to do voice rest? And how long do you tell them to do that for? Does that mean you can't talk at all? Does that mean like, you know, a couple of days, a week? How, how, does, how does that play? Or what do you, how do you tell them to do that? That's an evolving area of voice science as well. Uh, and you've got different voice specialists who practice differently. Uh, in general, I think it's, there's a general consensus that nobody should be on voice rest for longer than one week. 
And certainly after surgery, I usually do put my patients on voice rest for one week. There's, there's evolving thought to say, well, two days is probably long enough. And some people say, well, maybe you shouldn't put them on voice rest at all. Uh, you should just immediately get them back to using the voice. I haven't gotten that courageous yet. So, uh, I still, I still like to see that my patients are, uh, on voice rest, complete voice rest, no whispering for a full week. I find that it works best after their surgeries, just maybe more anecdotally. Now, do all of my patients comply with that? Of course not. <laughs> you know, you get people who are still speaking right after the surgery and they heal just fine as well. Um, although I will say, I will say that I have noticed some cultural differences in the way that people who speak different languages, how they talk and certain languages require a very guttural and, uh, forceful, uh, phonation that I see if they start talking after the surgery, just because of the way that they normally talk in their language, it can start causing poor healing. And I've got particularly one patient who I find that I'm going to have to take back to the operating room because she talks the exact same way. Now that she talked before we fixed the cyst and removed the cyst and guess what? She's got a cyst again. And I'm saying, how do you change this cultural or language problem that's contributing to the voice disturbance? And I just don't have a good answer for that one. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue into, um, when do you know, or what are the indications for microlaryngeal surgery? How do you know which singer or, you know, needs to go? It's all dictated by the pathology, I think. Um, Vocal nodules rarely require surgical intervention. Uh, usually those can be addressed with voice therapy. The other end of the spectrum is a vocal polyp. It's almost always going to require surgery and that voice therapy is not going to be helpful for it. So vocal polyps and cysts, uh, those are definitely going to require surgery. And then occasionally we'll have uh, vocal nodules. We have to do something for a vocal nodule. Truth of the matter is sometimes even with a rigid laryngoscope, video laryngoscope, it's difficult to distinguish a, a cyst from a nodule sometimes. And so if I look at a patient, I think they may have a cyst. I'll send them to voice therapy first and see if they get better. If they don't, then I'm taking them to the operating room and say, oh yeah, well, that's why. Because it was a cyst with some reaction on the other side to make it look like nodule. In, in regards to voice therapy, um, what's your spiel when you're talking to patients about sending them for voice therapy? Because I feel like sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, we're going to send you to our speech therapist, voice therapy. It's going to help. You're going to get better. It's going to be great. And then they're just kind of like looking at me like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> what, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I slip up often and say speech therapy. When I say speech therapy, my patients immediately go to stuttering. You know what? I don't have a stuttering problem. I'm articulate. They're thinking about articulation disorders as opposed to a voice issue. So I try to remember to use the word voice therapy uh, in that regard. But I also uh, forewarn them that they will have to do some, they'll probably require that the patient do some exercises that seem silly and they probably seem like it can't possibly do anything, but I encourage them just still to remain compliant, no matter how silly the instructions seem to you, because if you really want to get better, you have to be compliant with, with their recommendations. They really do know what they're doing and really can help nurse you back to good voice health. 
So now that we've gotten you to talk to us for a good time about how your voice practices, tell us, I know because your passion is music and ministry. So tell us how you've merged your otolaryngology practice and your passions with music and ministry. So I am a gospel recording artist. And for me, it's probably one of the main reasons why I went into, well, probably the primary reason why I went into otolaryngology was because it gave me an opportunity to be able to teach other singers how to use, properly use and care for this instrument. I call it God Stradivarius. And the reason why is because as a Christian, I believe that there's a lot of things that we speak into existence. And so I, I often tell crowds when I'm speaking to them that the voice is the way that God has created us and allowed us to be able to use our natural bodies to create a spiritual force to impact the atmosphere around us. And, um, because voice is energy, voice is sound, sound is energy and energy displaces anatomic particles in the atmosphere around us. And so I think that when we open our mouths and we begin to speak positive and we begin to speak life into people, life happens. And this is where my faith comes into it. So I get excited about talking about, you know, being careful about the things that we say, because it really does change the world around us, not just on a theoretical perspective, but if you start looking at the energy that we release into the atmosphere in the form of a sound, we start seeing how that impacts it. So I love talking to churches and singers and uh, groups about how to use that voice in worship and how to use it for spiritual purposes as well. And being a voice expert and connected with the gospel music com community here in Nashville and across the country really helps me be able to do to do that. I love sound as an energy and voice as an energy. Yes. And I, I believe it works. I believe it. Honestly, I believe I give the example that um, when I was in medical school, it just felt like a lot of things was coming. I was a, the president of the Student National Medical Association at my medical college. And I think some people weren't terribly happy about my appointment to that position. They never said anything to me about it, but you know how you can feel energy or something it's like something's not quite right. And so I asked my wife, I said, listen, I, I need you to pray for me. Pray for me. That's fine. But I also want you to just speak some positive things about me into the atmosphere. I don't have to hear it. Just speak some positive things about me in the atmosphere. And my hope is you guys know how a sine wave is. You know, you got the peak up here. And if you got the peak going it, they're out of phase, they cancel each other out. I said, so just speak some positive about me to cancel out the negative that uh, maybe some other people are speaking in. And I don't know if she did it or not. I have to ask her now 20 years later if she ever did it, but <laughs> but I felt the difference. Did it, okay. I felt the difference, <laughs> so I believe it. <laughs> My mom says the same thing, that there's vibrations that we create around us and that the more positive vibrations that we create around us, the more of a better we'll feel, you know. Um, and the better may, you make other people feel, you know. Exactly. There's, you know, you've all, all of us have met people that you just enjoy being around and you're not really sure, you know, you can't put your finger on it, but there's just, they have a good vibe. Part of it is the voice. It's, it's what's coming out of their mouths and, and what comes out of our mouths really does have the ability, I think, to produce life in people. And it has the ability to produce death in people as well. And so I think we just ought to be much more careful and mindful about the power that we have resident in our voices. Do you find that there's certain qualities in ministry that you use on your day-to-day -day at the bedside with doctoring? I play my music. 
That's awesome. <laughs> I know shameless plugs. You call my office and you get put on a hold. You you have to listen to Dr. Mark Williams, you know. And I was a little worried about that at first because I was playing gospel music and I didn't know how people would respond to being on a hold on gospel music. And so people are now they're they're much more pleasant when they get on the other end with my uh yeah. with my front office staff. And so maybe it calms them down and some people are like, Well, put me back on hold. I want to finish listening to that. <laughs> I think in 14 years that I've been doing that, I've had one complaint. And these are people from different, I, I see patients with all different types of faith, so no faith at all. And I've had one complaint and they just thought that you shouldn't be playing Christian music. Maybe it's because I'm here in Tennessee at the belt buckle of the Bible belt, the buckle of the Bible belt. I don't know. But uh, we see a lot of Muslim patients and people of other faiths as well. And no one has ever really complained about yeah. that. So I'm glad for that. And plus it opens the door and allows patients to know that, you know, if they want to talk on a spiritual level, that I'm here and available to speak with them on that level. If they want me to pray, I'm happy to engage in that regard. I don't mm -hmm. initially, I don't take the step to engage or push that on anyone, but they know that I'm available if they choose. Well, I'm a Hindu and I enjoy gospel music and, you know, religion, spirituality, it, to me, it's, you know, pretty much there's, you have different faiths, but with lots of the same messages and values. So I think it's okay. Yes. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad to know that that's not the reason why you left us. <laughs> my fellowship set up. I, have a good night, but I don't know if my boss is listening. Dr. Mitchell, if you are, I didn't think about not coming. <laughs> No. <laughs> Full circle here, huh? Exactly, completely. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, so, Dr. Williams, if if our listeners want to check out your music, um, you know, other than calling your office and and being put on hold, <laughs> how else can they can they find find and listen to you? <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought about recommending that way, but <laughs> call the office and be put on hold. <laughs> But if they can find anything they would like to know about me at drmarkwill.com, uh, D-R-M-A-R-K-W-I-L-L.com. That is on that page. I'm, we're merging music, medicine, and ministry. So you can learn more about my music. You can learn more about the ministry that, uh, that I offer, including the book that I just wrote. Congratulations. Wrote yes, thank you. During pandemic. Tell the, yeah, tell us about the book. So the book was based off of a CD, my most recent CD I recorded was called When a Man Worships. And after I uh, recorded, I call it dude worship. You know, a lot of times dudes like to be real tough and macho and everything. We don't like to get involved in worship or anything. Seems too soft, but I call it dude worship. But after I recorded the CD, a friend of mine said, you should write a book and each chapter in the book should be a song. Each song on the CD should represent a chapter in the book. And I thought that was a phenomenal idea, but I just never really found the time to do it. And along came Rona. You know Rona. Yeah. Corona, we're, we're on first name yeah. basis like that. I, I call her yeah. Rona now. That nickname. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we had a dramatic slowdown in our uh, practice last summer around April, May, June. It was pretty slow. And I had already had many of these lessons and a lot of the writing already in my head and some of it actually in writing from courses that I've taught on worship. And so it was pretty easy within a matter of about three weeks to be able to put everything on paper and get the book published. Wow. 
And I was really glad to be able to do that. So Winter Man Worships is also available on Amazon. And you can also find that on drmarkwill.com. All of my social media is the same, uh, Dr. Mark Will, at Dr. Mark Will, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Be aware. Wait a minute. I think, yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, don't go on my Facebook page because you might find a whole bunch of other stuff. Political thought. <laughs> <laughs> you might find a lot of political thought, but if you go on Dr. Mark Will's Facebook page, you won't find that. So don't find my personal <laughs> Facebook page. Otherwise, you might not like what I say politically. So. <laughs> Well, congratulations on the book. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to come on to the show today, Dr. Williams. It was so nice to reconnect and just see that you're doing so well and doing so many exciting things. And I love that um, how you've been able to kind of personalize and self-express, you know, your practice, parts of your practice into um, other passions in your life. So that's very unique and it's something awesome. So, yeah, I think it really does make up for the lack of compensation that I get from being a solo practitioner uh, to be <laughs> sometimes I really wish I had partners and, you know, was an employee position. I said, soon I'm going to retire, but I need to probably work a little bit longer as a solo practitioner, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I totally enjoy what I'm doing. I love the freedom that uh, being in solo practice offers for me to be able to be open and expressionate about my faith, open and expressionate about my political views or, or whatever may come about. And patients have the right then to choose whether or not they still want the excellent care that I would provide for them, or if they would allow their political or religious biases to prevent them from doing that, that that's their prerogative. But in any case, I can still be an open book called When a Man Worships. <laughs> and you have your voice. <laughs> that's the best part about it. Definitely. Awesome. Well, um, th thank you. Thank you again to our guests and to our listeners. Shout out to Ann Dong for social media and Varun Sagi and Wasik Nadim for blog posts. Big thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks for checking out the show today. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. This will help us grow. And you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at underscore backtable ENT. It's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>